Welcome to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. Your guide is pastor and theologian Dr. John Whitaker, and the heart behind these studies is to help you better understand the text of Scripture so you can more fully live it out. It's all about helping you learn and live the Bible. Here is the book of 2 Thessalonians. All right, welcome to this commentary and the listener's commentary on the New Testament. This commentary is going to focus on Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And this whole commentary series is driven by the desire to help you and others like you be able to study the Bible for yourself right where you live and have access to a tool to kind of guide you through the text. And so here in this commentary, we will be walking through 2 Thessalonians and wrestling with this very small but important letter from Paul to the church there in Thessalonica. And in this session, we're going to just walk down through chapter 1, 1 through 12, that really all in a lot of ways goes together. But there are Three distinct chunks to it. Verses 1 and 2, an introduction and greeting. Verses 3 through 10, Paul's thanksgiving that turns into an encouragement. And then verses 11 and 12, which flows out of that encouragement and is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. So, chapter 1, 1 through 12. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's introduction and greeting to the church in Thessalonica. And immediately, a greeting like that invites us into a story. We have people that are sending the letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Silvanus is just another name for Silas. So these three, and the reason Paul lists all of them is because, as we said in the backstory that we talked about in 1 Thessalonians, all three of these people were involved in the founding of the church in Thessalonica and in what happened to the church after Paul was forced out of town by opposition. And so the senders, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and then we have the specific church, the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in a second. But this draws us into a story about what's going on with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. What's going on with the church and what's the backstory, right? That's why we've tended to start these commentaries with some session looking at the backstory to the letter. Well, in this session, we're not doing that. We're going to jump right into chapter 1, and that's because we really already told the lion's share of the backstory when we started 1 Thessalonians. So if you haven't listened to the backstory to 1 Thessalonians, I encourage you to pause this uh, audio, go back, listen to that, so you at least understand the story a little bit more about the relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians. Now, in addition to the details and that backstory, we need to kind of at least bring up to speed what's happened since Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians that motivated the writing of 2 Thessalonians. And we don't know exactly how it all played out. Uh, what we do know is Paul was forced out of Thessalonica. He was concerned about the church. He had left Timothy, Silas, to do some work in Macedonia after he had left the region and gone down to Athens and then from Athens to Corinth. And he sent 1 Thessalonians from Corinth to the church there in Thessalonica. And what seems like has happened is Paul sent that church. Once the delivery person came back from Thessalonica, 
with news of how the letter was received, how the church is doing, uh, it seems like all of a sudden that Paul has realized or that the delivery person has come back with a report that while the letter was generally received well and while the church is doing pretty good, there's still some confusion about the second coming of Jesus and what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians actually added to that confusion. So when he wrote about the coming of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5, it seemed to have triggered some issues and some questions for the Christians there in the church because they somehow, this is the best we can figure out, they had gotten the idea that maybe Paul was saying that the coming of Jesus had already happened. That becomes clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that there's some confusion, some question, even some sort of misleading reports about that. We'll look at that in more detail when we get to chapter 2. But that's what seems to have happened. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. The delivery person delivers the letter, stays with the church for a while, then returns back to Paul in Corinth and tells Paul, hey, there's still some confusion about uh, the the timing of the second coming. They're still confused about that because of some misguided and misleading reports about that. I think you need to clarify that. And that issue about people not working and mooching off the church, it hasn't gotten any better. It's actually gotten worse. And so you might need to take a little more stronger tack on that. And that seems to be what motivated the writing of Second Thessalonians. And so Paul picks up his pen or at least his voice, and dictates a letter uh, that is now going to be delivered back to the church in Thessalonica, what we call the letter of 2 Thessalonians. And so Paul and his team, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, addresses this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. And notice how the church of the Thessalonians is described. It's the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and all those qualifying phrases serve to uh, indicate which specific church, because the word church wasn't purely a religious word referring to a Christian organization in Paul's day. The word church, ecclesia, literally is just the assembly, the gathering, and it was used for the gathering, the assembly of the city officials. It was used for various assemblies or gatherings of people throughout the city. So we've got to specify which gathering of people, which assembly of people we're talking about. Well, we're talking about the assembly of the Thessalonians that is connected to God our Father and the Lord Jesus the Messiah. That's the assembly. That's the gathering of people that Paul is addressing here. And he gives them, as we have explained in the past, kind of a modified version of the standard greeting. Grace to you, which is a, a modification of the standard Greek greeting, which is chirine, greetings, from the word to rejoice. And this is grace, charis, from a similar root. And so uh, grace to you and peace. And peace is the standard Jewish greeting, shalom, peace. And so grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after having greeted the church then, Paul turns to what it was customary in letters of his day, although expanded usually in Paul's letters, to a thanksgiving of some sort. In the typical letters of the day, it was a little prayer report or a well-wish from the gods or something like that. In Paul's letters, it's a little more in detail, and oftentimes it actually 
uh, serves to signify some of the things he's going to deal with in detail in the letter. So we get Paul's thanksgiving in verses 3 through 10. And actually, in the original Greek, verses 3 through 10 is one long sentence. And it begins with what Paul is thanking God for uh, regarding the Thessalonians. And then that leads into an encouragement about God's vindication, God's justice for the Thessalonians. And so this is what uh, this is what he says. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, which is sort of an awkward phrase. Instead of just saying, we thank God for you, he says, we ought always to do it. It's right for us to do this. We, we owe it to God to do this because of who you are and how you're responding to God's work. That seems to be the force of it. So we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is only fitting. And that idea of fitting serves to emphasize that same sense of ought, like it's only right for us to do this. It's the only appropriate thing to do. Why? Because your faith is increasing abundantly and the love of each and every one of you towards one another grows ever greater. And so Paul is thankful for two specific things that are evident in the Thessalonians' life. One is their faith is growing. It's translated, your faith is increasing abundantly, but it's the word for grow, and then it's got a compound with it. So it's a compound word of the word for grow. Literally, it's your faith is hyper-growing. That's the idea. It's hyper-growing. Your faith is really growing. Your trust in, your faithfulness to, your confidence in Jesus is growing uh, more and more. And the other thing he's thankful for is the fact that their love for one another is growing ever greater. So their love continues to grow and deepen as well. And so he's thankful because of their growing faith and love. He's so thankful for that, and it's so evident that their faith and their love is growing, he says in verse 4, that he says, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God because of your perseverance and your faith, or your faithfulness, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And so, because of what Paul sees happening in the church and how they're remaining faithful and steadfast, their faith is growing, their love is growing, they're enduring difficulty and hardship. He says, we speak proudly of you among the churches. Literally, uh, that word speak proudly is we we proudly rejoice. We proudly boast about you. It's this idea to celebrate. It's the kind of thing, say, a parent does for a child when they have had some significant achievement or accomplishment, and they'll tell their friends, hey, you'll never believe what little Johnny did the other day, right? They're speaking proudly of, they're boasting. And Paul says, that's the way it is with you and us. And we hear what's going on for you, and we're sharing it here with the church in Corinth and Athens, and we're letting people know about you and and your perseverance, your endurance, and faith. That word faith, probably in this place is better translated faithfulness. It's your staying faithful in the midst of all your difficulties. And so your perseverance and faithfulness in the midst of all your persecutions, that word persecution usually refers to um, difficulties that are an attack from individuals who disagree with your beliefs and your worldview. And so that's more personal your persecutions, and your afflictions. And that word afflictions just generally is hardships of any kinds. And so you're experiencing attacks because of your faith. You're experiencing various kinds of difficulties and hardships. You're enduring them and you're remaining faithful in the midst of them. And we're proudly celebrating that. 
Then what Paul does in verses 5 and following is he shifts to giving an encouragement about all of this. So we're thanking God for you on behalf of all of this. And then here's our encouragement. And the encouragement is really that you are going to be vindicated. Even though you're being attacked and even though you're experiencing difficulty, the fact that you're remaining faithful in the midst of that um, is, is evidence that God will vindicate you and that you are in the right. You will be vindicated uh, in the midst of all these difficulties. Look what he says, verse 5. He says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. In other words, your, your being faithful in the midst of your persecution and difficulty is evidence that God's judgment is just. That God's judgment is right, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. In other words, the fact that you are remaining faithful under intense opposition and pressure doesn't, it doesn't give you an entry pass into God's kingdom. It proves that you truly belong to it. It proves that when God vindicates you and bestows on you all the blessings of his kingdom, right? When you inherit the kingdom in fullness, that it's right for God to do that because you suffered for it. You endured patiently uh, for the sake of it. And also notice that, that for which indeed you are suffering. Well, that indicates that what, what the Thessalonians are suffering for, that's no small thing. You're not just suffering for, you know, some new religious experience. You're not just suffering for some trivial little thing. You're actually suffering for the very kingdom of God, for the very reign and rule of God that's at work in this world and that's trying to push back the forces of evil. That's what you're suffering for. And so you're suffering for something that's significant and a big deal. And your faithfulness in the midst of that indicates that you ought to be uh, counted worthy of that kingdom, that you truly do belong to it. Now, Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7 and says, and here's how that's going to play out. And there's two parts to God's righteous judgment. There's two components to the fact that of God's vindication of you. One is what happens to those who are opposing you and who are persecuting you. And the other is what happens to you. So he says in verse 6, 4, after all, it's only right, it's only just is the idea. That, that word right is it's only just. It's the right and just thing to do. So it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So those who are causing you harm, who are opposing you, who are causing you difficulty because of your faith in Jesus, it's only right for God to repay them with affliction. And, verse 7, and it's only right for God to give relief to you who are afflicted. And so that's the two components of God's righteous judgment, afflicting the afflictors and giving rest to the afflicted, giving relief to the afflicted. And notice the nature of the language there in verses 6 and 7. It is uh, right for God to repay. This is a just repayment. People are getting what they they deserve, what is fair and right in view of the circumstances. And so it's not capricious. It's not unpredictable. It's not 
unjust, it is just and right and fair. It's just repayment. Um, and God's repayment plan provides really a dual encouragement to the Thessalonians and to us that on one hand, their enemies or our enemies are God's enemies, and it provides the encouragement of relief. There will be relief from the suffering and from the hardship and from the affliction if you just hang in there. And so God will bring an end to their affliction and will punish their persecutors because God's commitment to his people is that great. Now, when will this happen? Well, notice what he says. He goes on and says that uh, God's going to give relief to you who are afflicted, along with us, along with Paul and his team, who are, have suffered much persecution and hostility because of their preaching gospel. And this is going to happen when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So this will happen when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Right now, at present, Jesus is hidden in heaven. He is unseen in heaven, right? And, and the barrier between earth and heaven is great. And so heaven is God's realm. It is where God is 100% king, and in heaven, God has enthroned his king, the Messiah, Jesus the Lord. Well, someday, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. That is, he will be disclosed. He will be unveiled. Uh, it's the idea of the curtain will be pulled back, and what really is going on in the world and what really is true will be seen in all clarity and accuracy, and what will be seen is that Jesus really is the world's true King and Lord. And so he will be revealed. He will be disclosed from heaven. Uh, and when it says disclosed from heaven, specifically the idea is um, not just the heavens, I, as in the universe or the sky, but from heaven, as in heaven as God's realm, the place where God is in charge, and thus it emphasizes Jesus' authority as God's right-hand man, God's king, who is now ruling with God over all things, and someday, in his kingship and his authority, he will actually be revealed in all his glory as king of kings and lord of lords. And Paul adds here that this revealing of Jesus from heaven will be with his mighty angels. So with his army of angels, that's the idea. Angels are never in the Bible cute little cherubs who instill good feelings. They are powerful beings, and oftentimes they're pictured as God's army. And so Jesus is going to be revealed in glory with his mighty powerful angels in flaming fire. And fire is frequently uh, used in scripture as a symbol of God's presence, as well as a symbol of God's judgment. And so Jesus in this context is coming as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, with his angels to judge the living and the dead, to, to bring justice to the world. So he comes in flaming fire, notice, dealing out retribution. And so he's bringing judgment. He's bringing justice to this world. He's bringing appropriate, just repayment to the people of this world. And uh, that payment here is described as retribution because it's focused on 
uh, unbelievers. It's focused on those apart from God. They are described this way in two ways here. They are described as those who do not know God. So they don't know the true God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel, uh, Jesus comes to bring just repayment, retribution to them because of their unbelief, and in context here, because of their, not just unbelief, but their hostility even to God's very own people. Paul then proceeds in verse 9 to describe their penalty um, and what that penalty looks like, and we need to make sure we hear it in terms of a penalty. Again, this is justice. God is not, it's not capricious. It's not just the retaliation of a egotistic and jilted deity, as one scholar said. This is a appropriate penalty, a just one, a penalty that fits the crime. And so this is what Paul says in verse 9. He says, these people, that is those who don't know God or obey the gospel, these people will pay the penalty, this just repayment. In fact, the word penalty is from the same word as righteous and just or justice. It's a just penalty. So they're going to pay a just penalty. And here's how the penalty is described, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so their penalty is described as eternal destruction. I think the best way to understand that phrase is eternal ruin. Uh, sometimes the word destruction has been used for those who are proponents of the idea that people just cease to exist, that uh, their suffering is not eternal because their existence is not eternal. They cease to exist. Uh, I, 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 there are well-known Bible teachers and scholars who hold to that view, um, and sometimes this verse is used as that, but I think the word translated destruction isn't ceasing to exist so much as it is being ruined. If you've ever been, say, to a junkyard uh, where cars are just ruined, they don't run anymore, they're missing parts, right? They're all scavenged and they're, they're never going to run again. That seems to be the idea of this word. Those cars are ruined. Um, that, that's the sense here. So these are going to suffer the penalty of eternal ruin. Um, it is the opposite of eternal life, whereas eternal life isn't just eternal existence. It is full, authentic, genuine human experience, genuine human life, the way we were designed to live. This is the opposite of that. So there's eternal life and there's eternal ruin. Um, and what makes for this eternal ruin, this eternal destruction? Well, that's what he says later, that they are going to suffer eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Frankly, I think that's what makes uh, their, their repayment just. They want nothing to do with God. They have no in interest in knowing God and being inter uh, actively involved with God, right? They, they've pushed God away and want nothing to do with him. They don't know him. They don't obey the good news about Jesus. It's to bring them into relationship with him. And so God gives them what they want. They don't want God. They don't have to have God. God's not going to force them into a relationship with himself. And thus, uh, they will then spend eternity apart from God and because God is the source of all beauty, joy, love, life, and goodness, it is to be ruined 
to be apart from him. Since we are made in God's image and the only thing that brings goodness into our life is uh, God's very own presence to be apart from him is to be destroyed, to be ruined. In my understanding of the Bible's teaching on the the fate of the wicked, the fate of those who don't know God, what we typically call hell, in my understanding of that, this is probably one of the most important texts for us to think about, because so much of what is said about hell in the New Testament is metaphorical. It's symbolic, right? Like outer and utter darkness and eternal fire. Those two images are very different images. Uh, How can you have complete darkness and also fire at the same time? Because fire creates light, right? Those are two images trying to describe a reality of the, the awfulness of and the ruin of the eternal destiny of those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. Here, I think we have a much more straightforward description of what makes hell so hellish, and it's being separated from the very presence of God and the very glory of God. And since God, as I said, is the source of everything that's good, beautiful, and right in the world, to be apart from him is to be awful, is to be ruined, is to be destroyed. So that's the fate of those who are opposing the Thessalonians and who as Paul describes it here, don't know God or obey the gospel. Verse 10, then, Paul goes on and describes the the destiny of, of the Thessalonians and those who do know God and who do obey the gospel. And so this retribution, this repayment is going to happen when Jesus comes to be glorified among his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so when Jesus returns, uh, his people, right, that he is going to be glorified among his people. There's going to be this experience of glory and worship and celebration, this experience of putting Jesus' name up in lights and seeing Jesus for who he really is. And so he's going to be glorified among his people, and he's going to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so this, when Jesus returns and he is revealed from heaven, Um, who he is is going to be so incredible and so wonderful that there will be this amazement, this marveling among all who believe, all the people who have believed in him and put their confidence in him are finally going to see him in all his glory. And it'll be a marvelous experience for them and for us who are part of that crowd and that that group of people, right? And the Thessalonians will be there. The Thessalonians will be a part of that. And so to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. Now, Paul has offered thanksgiving. That thanksgiving led to what I've called an encouragement because it's really an encouragement in verses five and following, uh, trying to give perspective on their present experience. They are suffering deeply because of their faith in Jesus, and Paul offers a little perspective by way of encouragement to bolster them and to help them continue to stand firm. And that encouragement is, hang in there because your hanging in there is evidence that, that it's right for God to punish those who are harming you and to vindicate you and give you relief right? And so that encourages you that their vindication is coming. 
Stay put. Stay faithful. Don't toss in the towel. God will sort things out, and God will make things right, and it'll be totally just, and it'll be totally fair, and it'll be totally good. And for those who are faithful to Jesus, it'll be a wonderful, beautiful thing. So be encouraged and hang in there. And so Thanksgiving leads to encouragement. And then the last bit of chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that then leads to his prayer report for how he's praying for the Thessalonians. And this is how he's praying, verse 11. To this end, unto this, for this reason, we pray for you always. That Here's what he's praying. That our God will consider you or count you worthy of your calling. Your calling as God's people. Your calling you know, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, that he has called you as that, right? He's appointed you as that, that he would count you worthy of that is the idea, that he would find you worthy of your calling and that he would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. And so Paul's praying that God would count them worthy of their calling and that uh, every good desire that the Thessalonians have, every desire they have to do what's right, and every desire they have to work out of faith and, and please God and serve God because of their faith, that God would fulfill that with power, that he would give them the power to do what they want to do on God's behalf there in Thessalonica, with the result that in verse 12, so that there means result. It's communicating more the result of this. Here's the result of what he wants for them, so that with the result that, the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified in you. So Paul's praying that God would count them worthy, that God, Paul would give them the strength and the power to do all the good and faith-filled work they desire to do with the result that Jesus would be glorified among them and that you in him, notice that, that, and that you would be glorified in him, that you would be captured up in glory with him because there's going to be a day where we too will be glorified in the sense we'll get our glorified bodies and we'll reign with Jesus forever and ever in accordance with the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ because it's his grace that makes all of that possible. And so to summarize, Paul is thanking God the Thessalonians are continuing to be faithful in the midst of their difficulties, and he is uh, praying that they would just continue to do that, that God would help them to be faithful in the midst of all this, knowing that God will vindicate them someday. All right, now, as we just reflect on that and wrap up this section, one of the things I think is important for us to reflect on and think about is this idea of God's vindication. Uh, Paul doesn't hesitate to encourage and build up the Thessalonians' faith by saying, look, God will bring justice someday, so you hang in there. And the reality is, all of us who are human beings, we, we are, because we're made in the image of God, we long for justice. We want uh, the things that are wrong to be made right. And that is not a wrong desire. The problem is, is that we don't always know exactly what is right, and we don't always have the wisdom and the restraint and the clarity to bring what's right, but God does. God is able to bring complete and perfect justice to the world. That's why we are encouraged not to take uh, matters into our own hands. We're, not, we're, we're encouraged not to take revenge, but to leave room for God's vengeance, because God will do it justly. God will do it fairly. God will sort all things out, and his justice will be 100% perfectly 
right. And we may not fully understand that, and we may not fully get that, but that's the reality of it. And that's what Paul is appealing to here in this section. And so it's okay for us to long for justice. I feel like sometimes in the modern world, um, we have squelched the desire for justice, but knowing that God will sort it all out, God will make things right, actually enables us to treat those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel with grace and with kindness and with love, because we know that somehow God's going to make everything right someday. Knowing that God will bring justice is also one of the things that enables us to just forgive people, because we can let them off our hook and leave them on God's hook and know that God will do it way better than we would anyhow. And it'll always be it'll always be fair and right in keeping with both God's wisdom, God's mercy, and God's truthfulness and God's justice. God will do it right. And so this passage reminds us of the importance of that as we live this life to know that God will sort it all out in the end. We don't have to sort it all out now. We just have to be faithful before God.